In 2001, back in a time when logging onto the web sounded something like this, a University of Toronto professor named Ron Debert had this hunch about the internet. He was pretty sure it wouldn't just, well, spark joy. He'd been watching how intelligence agencies use satellites to verify arms agreements, and he wondered if those same technologies could be used to help civil society. So he founded a group called the Citizen Lab, and the idea was to create a high-tech human rights watchdog, a kind of CSI of the internet that would hold powers misusing technology to account. And in the 21 years since, Debert's spidey sense that the internet wasn't going to be all rainbows and unicorns has turned out to be exactly right in ways that have even surprised him. This is like an accidental contingent factor in history. We've surround ourselves with technology that's invasive by design. Uh, we carry around with us 24 hours a day devices that are vacuuming up as much personal fine-grained detail about us as human beings. And yet that ecosystem is entirely insecure. But this isn't just about privacy, though that's part of it too. These days, we're used to hacked networks and stolen emails. What's new is this next level, the spy in your pocket, on your phone. And it has a name, spyware. And its use has become so normalized, it seems like everyone's doing it. Not just despots and autocrats anymore. Democratic countries are too. And spyware is being deployed as a kind of high-tech opposition research. To me, this is the most serious threat to liberal democracy right now, by far, is what we're, what we're unleashing on ourselves. I'm Dina Templereston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, a conversation with Ron Debert of the Citizen Lab about the hack for hire industry. It's gone mainstream, and we look at what that means for civil society. It's like Frankenstein's monster has come home to haunt them. We'll be right back. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. When I first met Ron Diebert more than 10 years ago, he was known for uncovering an attack on a surprising target. The possible hacking of computers at the office of the Dalai Lama may have uncovered a vast network of cyber espionage. The office of the Dalai Lama, the exiled Tibetan leader, had asked the Citizen Lab to take a look at their computers because something seemed off. They were right. Diebert and his team pawed through the network and discovered a massive surveillance operation. This is Debert on CNN in 2009, explaining what they'd found. They wanted. 
They could turn on web cameras, turn on audio devices so that they could, in effect, use the computers as a listening device in the office. It turns out Chinese hackers had accessed the Dalai Lama's email accounts, but it wasn't just his holiness. The Citizen Lab researchers uncovered a Chinese state-sponsored intelligence gathering operation that targeted governments in 103 different countries. The Citizen Lab called the spying operation GhostNet, and their report marked the first time researchers had ever exposed the inner workings of a hack of this magnitude. What it made clear was that many governments were starting to use sophisticated computer programs to gather information. Looking back on it, it was a sign, and most of us missed it. So when I first started talking to you years and years ago, we had the Dalai Lama, right? Yes. But when you were doing the Dalai Lama project, did you see this coming? No, I, I actually did not. And it's interesting to think back, that wasn't that long ago, 2008, 2009. I was really focused on this is something governments are doing. And it was only, you know, a couple of years later that it started to dawn on me, oh, there's this big market for espionage, for digital espionage. Espionage has come a long way since GhostNet. It's no longer just about state-sponsored groups. In the past 40 years, our global economy has created a class of billionaires and oligarchs and a world full of clients willing to pay top dollar to stay in power or to just keep what they have. And a new competitive industry is willing to help them do that. We've been watching that happen, and now spyware is widely available. So now, if you're a despot or an autocrat or even a corrupt mogul somewhere, you can order up a sophisticated, privatized subversion campaign against any target. Could be you as a journalist. It could be some political opposition figure. As easy as ordering a sweater on eBay or Amazon. Consider the case of Ethiopia. Back in 2017, some Ethiopian journalists working overseas reached out to the Citizen Lab about some suspicious emails. After researchers dug into their electronic devices, they found a surprising thing. Spyware secretly dropped on their phones by an Israeli company called Cyberbit. Now, you think about this. Ethiopia, one of the poorest countries in the world, less than 25% internet connectivity, can, thanks to Cyberbit, undertake a global cyber espionage operation getting inside the devices of more than 20 victims around the world. Like, that's truly unprecedented in terms of the capacity to effectively purchase your own national security agency. In the old days, if someone wanted to conduct surveillance, it was incredibly risky and really labor-intensive. If they had been following a couple of dozen journalists in the traditional way... They would have had to send agents to actually, you know, get inside his apartment, put bugs in his space. Um, and even then, the information wouldn't be that that useful because he'd have to be talking about something right next to the bug. Um, but now, with a push of a button, they can get inside his head. And it turns out ground zero for the development of spyware is in Israel. Israel's a very special case. So you have this very explicit startup culture. People who have an intelligence background, maybe they go through their military service, are encouraged to develop uh, businesses and, and market their techniques and skills to both government clients and private sector clients. You're, you're talking about Unit 8200. Yeah, and others as well. Think of Unit 8200 as Israel's NSA. 
A lot of promising computer geeks in Israel do their mandatory military service at 8200 and then leave and start their own businesses. I mean, I think it's, it's broader than just one agency. There's a whole culture there that for a long period of time has encouraged innovation around, broadly speaking, intelligence gathering, let's call it. The Israeli investigative company Black Cube was started by an IDF planning officer, and it has offices in Tel Aviv, London, and Madrid. On its website, it says it uses creative intelligence to get the job done. These are companies that are employed by, you know, a variety of potential clients, not just governments, often law firms, you know, front companies, private equity firms, you know, anyone that's involved in the kind of malfeasance that surrounds kleptocrats and billionaire oligarchs. And they often go by benign sounding names like reputation management or deep background checks. But Diebert says if you look at these sorts of companies' business models, it's often all about hacking. It's basically providing government clients with the ability to get inside a device. Once you can get inside a device, you have effectively a gold mine of information that can be used for passive data collection, just to gather intelligence about a target, but can also be used for all sorts of harmful things. Harmful things like falsely incriminating information or data for blackmail. Black Cube and a company you may have heard of, NSO Group, are just two key players. There are dozens more all around the world. Diebert says that the fact that just about anyone can now get national security-grade espionage in a box has led to something even more worrying. Democracies are starting to use these techniques, too. As if to underscore just how prevalent spyware has become, some recent news out of Spain. Just last month, Diebert and his team reported that the phones belonging to dozens of pro-independent supporters in Catalonia were loaded with spyware. Pegasus spyware is once again back in the spotlight, this time for targeting pro-independent supporters in Spain's Catalonia. Most of it was Pegasus, a spyware produced by the NSO group. And some of it was the handiwork of another Israeli company called Kandaroo. NSO and Kandaroo responded by saying their products are meant to stop crime and terrorism. And while the Citizen Lab couldn't say with 100% certainty who had ordered up the surveillance, in the report they wrote, strong circumstantial evidence suggests a nexus with Spanish authorities. Both the European Parliament and Spanish officials have opened investigations, and the Spanish government denies it was behind it. Funny thing about that, though, just this week, the Spanish government announced that it had found Pegasus software on the prime minister and defense minister's cell phones. Spanish authorities are trying to determine whether other senior officials have been targeted as well. What's clear is that spyware is becoming so prevalent, it caused one citizen lab researcher to observe that a government can sometimes be a perpetrator in one spyware incident and unwittingly be the victim in another. The interesting thing is it's not a problem, like we often think about problems in the world, oh, there are a bunch of bad countries over here, and we're the good countries, and we need to find ways to, the way people talk about, for example, foreign influence operations. You know, oh, this is something we need to think about and defend against. When actually the root of the problem is deep inside liberal democratic countries themselves. When we come back, why this new high-tech surveillance has become such a hard problem to tackle. This is Click Here. 
politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking with Deeper, you can't help but wonder if this rise in the hack-for-hire industry was somehow avoidable and whether we missed something along the way. And has this been going on a really long time and we haven't noticed it, or is it kind of a new thing? I, I think it's both in a way. It's been going on for longer than I think a lot of people realize, but it is a relatively new thing. However, I think now it's certainly becoming uh, more apparent to a lot of policymakers, but it is something relatively new. Is it is it inexpensive? I mean, do we have a range? Like what's your, what's your Walgreens sort of, uh, or Kmart, type national security in a box? That, that's a really interesting question. Of course, there are a lot of potential clients out there that have deep pockets and don't really, for them, 10 million is trivial. But then you can also accomplish the same thing very cheaply. So we produced this report called Dark Basin, where we were working for about a year on what we believed was a massive global cyber espionage campaign targeting politicians civil society activists working on completely different topics like net neutrality and climate change, lawyers, on and on. Debert says the Citizen Lab researchers started pawing through this massive network and kept thinking it must be the Russians or the Chinese. And then the attackers made a mistake, which allowed the Citizen Lab to identify who they were. To Debert's surprise, it was a company called Beltrox. Based in a small shop in Delhi, India. They actually advertise their services on LinkedIn using this kind of benign sounding language like due diligence, reputation management, and yet they were employed seemingly by a, a wide variety of clients. The Beltrox case has been unusual in that some of its employees and associates have actually been held to account, at least in the U.S. One of its directors was indicted in California back in 2015 for a hack-for-hire scheme. And a few weeks ago, an Israeli private investigator pleaded guilty in federal court to crimes related to his role in the Beltrox operation. You may have a client, like a big multinational company, that then hires a law firm. The law firm hires a private investigator. The private investigator hires a hack-for-hire company. And the hack-for-hire company in this case is based in India. Ron Diebert says there is no simple solution to a problem so rooted in the global economy. It's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. So there's so many more government clients, which increases the value of the companies providing this type of service, which in turn undercuts systems of accountability and independent journalism and civil society, which leads to yet more abuse of power. So it's a kind of self-fulfilling dynamic that's happening right now that we need to somehow first recognize and get out of. But there are steps governments can take to curb this. Late last year, a bunch of hack-for-hire companies, including NSO Group and Kandaroo, appeared on a Commerce Department entity list. It's kind of a blacklist that requires Americans to get an exemption from the department to even do business with them. The Commerce Department said evidence suggested that the companies had developed and supplied spyware to foreign governments who used their spyware to target government workers, journalists, and activists. 
And Diebert said it wasn't just an empty government gesture. Immediately after that happened, Moody's downgraded NSO's credit rating. That's a tangible impact on that company's uh, viability. And it goes to show how regulations matter. Don't forget these companies that I'm talking about, the ones that are very lucrative, make their investors, it's usually like big private equity and pension funds, a lot of money. And, and so getting at the root of it is, is important. Five years from now, 10 years from now, are we gonna have this under control? Uh, I hope so. I don't think we'll have it under control. Realistically, I think things are getting worse rather than better. But right now, it's like we put the crazy kleptocrats in charge and they're running the world. And we're just not set up to understand it. It's kind of like we're living in a world of James Bond villains. That's the world order we live in right now. That was Citizen Lab founder Ron Diebert. And this is Click Here. And now a quick update from Ukraine. Alex Ryabsev is part of a global crowdsourced mapping collective called OpenStreetMap. As it turns out, if you're in the middle of a war, open source mapping presents a problem. We started to notice that uh, there are some edits of the map. After the edit, there were airstrikes and rocket strikes on the places that were edited by uh, some users on OpenStreetMap. What happened was this. One of the OpenStreetMap volunteers in Ukraine helpfully changed the coordinates on an airport. A short time later, Russians bombed it. It happened again with a local oil field, and then again at a local hospital. We can't prove 100% that the airstrike is after the edit, but if there are one, two, three edits, and after these edits there are airstrikes, that might be not only the coincidence. In response, Ryabsev said he and the OpenStreetMap volunteers in Ukraine did something that they've never done before. They froze the open source edits on the map. They just stopped changing things. Editing maps could be uh, potentially the source of information for our enemy to correct their airstrikes and rocket strikes. And when we are not editing the map, they do not get uh, information about what is destroyed and what is not destroyed. So they are not able to correct their airstrikes and rocket strikes. So I asked if he and the OpenStreetMap volunteers might go just a little bit further than that and, well, maybe insert some mistakes on those maps the Russians seemed to be using. He was incredulous. Providing some fake information, uh, it's... Uh, counter OpenStreetMap ground rules. And after the discussion, we said, no, it's not the way we should do. Ryabsev says, even in wartime, maps shouldn't be political. They should reflect the truth on the ground. Although you could make a case that deciding not to change them isn't necessarily telling the whole truth on the ground. OpenStreetMap has dealt with this issue before, with Crimea. After 2014, the collective began mapping the region as part of Russia. And we said no, because uh, Crimea is Ukraine, and the United Nations and all other international organizations see Crimea as part of Ukraine. 
Nowadays, if you go to OpenStreetMap website, you could see that Crimea uh, belongs both to Ukraine and to Russia. And Ukrainian community believes this is just a small victory of OpenStreetMap. A small victory amongst many. This is Click Here. Here are a few of the top cyber and intelligence stories of the past week. Internet service for the town of Kyrgyzstan in Ukraine is now running through a Russian network instead of a Ukrainian one. Ukrainian officials and internet access monitor NetBlocks said there was a near-total internet blackout across Kyrgyzstan this past weekend. Ukrainian telecom officials investigated and found breaks in the fiber optic backbone. Service returned on Sunday, but all the internet traffic is now going through Russia's Miranda and Ross Telecom networks. A year-long bug bounty program focusing on parts of the U.S. defense industrial base found more than 400 vulnerabilities in the DIBS networks. Nearly 300 security researchers from HackerOne, a bug bounty vendor, participated in the exercise. And according to the firm, they found 401 vulnerabilities that were deemed actionable and required remediation. The program included 41 entities and 348 systems over the course of the year. So that's just a sliver of the estimated hundreds of thousands of companies that contract directly with the Pentagon and other Defense Department agencies. And finally, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, urge companies and other organizations to take a long, hard look at its list of the top 15 routinely exploited vulnerabilities in 2021. Among them, Log4 Shell, Microsoft Bugs Proxy Logon and Proxy Shell, as well as a vulnerability affecting Atlassian products. The head of CISA, Jen Easterly, reminded cybersecurity officials that cybercriminals go back to what works, so they tend to target the same critical vulnerabilities they've exploited in the past until companies actually address them. Today's episode was produced by Will Jarvis and Sean Powers. It was edited by Karen Duffin, with fact-checking from Darren Ancrum. Ben Levingston composed our theme and original music for the episode, and we had additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Click Here is a production of The Record by Recorded Future. And we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. And you can connect with us at clickhereshow.com. I'm Dina Templereston. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to therecord.media.